This is an ABC podcast. A president loses an election, but his supporters do not accept it. Massive protests rip through the country. Desperate politicians appeal for calm. It all sounds really familiar, right? But this time we're not talking about the US. I'm talking about Brazil and a recent election that's going to have huge implications for the environment. G'day, it's Dave Marchese with you for the Hack Podcast. Later, we're going to get the rundown on what's happened in Brazil, who's in charge, and what it'll mean for the world's biggest rainforest. Also coming up, the new facial tattoo trends that are taking off. First, though. Hack! Minister Morrison has requested that DHS bring forward proposals for strengthening the integrity of the welfare system. On Triple Jack. Hundreds of thousands of you were caught up in robo-debt. You don't need me to tell you how devastating it was. We've covered it so much in the past. Hundreds of millions of dollars had to be repaid to Aussies who were wrongfully targeted by the botched automated scheme. Now we're getting some answers about how all this happened in the first place because a royal commission that was announced earlier this year has had its hearings start this week. And let's just say over the past few days there have already been some big revelations that experts were questioning whether the scheme was even legal before it rolled out. If you were caught up in robo-debt and you're keeping track of this big inquiry, I want to know, are you surprised by what's coming out? Does it make you feel better that officials are facing questions now? Message in 0439757555. First, here's Ellie Grounds to bring us up to speed. Amy, if you could place your right hand on the Bible... You swear by Almighty God that the evidence you will give will be the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. I do. This is Amy. That's not a real name, but a pseudonym she's using as a witness in the Royal Commission into the robo-debt scheme. From 2011 to 2015, Amy was studying at uni and living at home. And once she turned 22, started getting youth allowance payments alongside money she earned at her casual job. Generally, the hours uh, would vary the dependent on my studies and the level of uh, university work that I had, it was only a shift or two, which would be anything from perhaps four hours uh, to, if I did a few shifts, it would be maybe eight. Nearly two years later, long after she'd stopped claiming youth allowance, she got a letter from Centrelink saying the tax office reckoned the info she gave them when she was claiming youth allowance was incorrect. And if she couldn't prove it was right, she'd owe them a debt. That made me very anxious. Um, I was had just commenced full-time employment. I'd just moved out, which meant, of course, that suddenly my expenses were all my own. And to have a debt hang over your head is for, for a young person... Is, um, is a frightening concept. More than 430,000 people were issued robo-debt notices by Centrelink from 2015 to 2019. The scheme automatically matched up the income welfare recipients reported with their tax office data and told many vulnerable Australians they owed debts when they didn't. It led some young Australians to take their own lives. In 2019, the scheme was paused. Two weeks later, the federal court said key parts of it were unlawful. Now there's a royal commission into robo-debt and some juicy stuff has come out so far. First, we found out that government department lawyers actually warned it was illegal back in 2014 when it was still just an idea before it was rolled out. One such advice obtained by the Department of Social Services 
from its internal legal department in December 2014 concluded, and I quote, the proposal to smooth a debt amount over an annual or other defined period may not be consistent with the legislative framework. That phrase, smooth out, is referring to how the robo-debt calculations were done. By taking people's annual tax income and dividing it to try get their fortnightly income. But as any of us who have ever worked a casual job know, how much you earn each fortnight changes all the time. The advice said to make smoothing out legal, legislation would have needed to change. When the Solicitor General, that's the lawyer who gives the federal government legal advice, gave his own advice in 2019, it said basically the same thing. The question raised by the Solicitor General's advice is whether the Commonwealth Government was, prior to that point, recklessly indifferent to the lawfulness or otherwise of the use of averaged PAYG ATO data obtained from the Taxation Office to allege and recover debts. The Commission then heard in 2015 Scott Morrison, who was then the Social Services Minister, pushed government departments to bring forward the robo-debt proposal because he wanted to get it into the next federal budget. Minister Morrison has requested that DHS bring forward proposals for strengthening the integrity of the welfare system. It appeared that the very tight time frame and the pressure was coming from uh, a clearance by Minister Morrison to have a new policy proposal developed to the point where it might be submitted to the Department of Finance. Correct. That female voice is Anne Pulford. She was one of the Department of Social Services lawyers who warned in 2014 that the proposed robodebt scheme was illegal. She was asked yesterday about external legal advice the department got from a top-tier law firm four years later in 2018, which also questioned its lawfulness. It was only labelled draft advice, and the law firm said it could rework it if it caused the department catastrophic issues, but there wasn't a lot of wriggle room. But it's not clear if the advice was ever finalised or followed. But apparently that kind of thing happened all the time, which the Commissioner, Catherine Holmes SC, was not happy about. What do you do? You get an advice in draft and if it's not favourable, you just leave it that way. And then it never represents anything that you deal with. Is that the approach? Yes, Commissioner. And is that done regularly in the department? It's certainly happened many times that I have seen it, yes. I'm appalled. Hack on Triple J. Ellie Grounds there and we're getting some messages through. Someone says, disappointed as usual, but not surprised. Another person, the first time they called me was on the day of my dad's funeral. I'm so glad this is getting investigated. Not surprised by a lot of it, to be honest. I thought it was a joke to start with. Look, I want to get into this a bit more with Dr. Darren O'Donovan. He's a senior lecturer at La Trobe Law School and he's an expert in social security law. Darren's with us now. G'day, Darren. Thanks for joining us on Hack. Firstly, how are your fingers going? Because you've been live tweeting this Royal Commission, flicking out a few tweets a minute I've been seeing. They must be pretty sore. How are you doing? Oh, I think it's just right up my alley. Um, <laughs> you know, I think I think it's important as well that RoboDebt is a term that comes from Twitter. Um, in 2016, that term was made up on social media for people to describe their experiences of what they were experiencing, crude, unlawful death practices that the government wouldn't recognise. 
Well, Darren is tweeting a lot of this Royal Commission, so if you are on Twitter, you should follow him to keep updated with what's going on. Um, Darren, you are an expert in this area of law. This is your bag. I'm wondering, have you been surprised by the revelations so far in this Royal Commission? Like, we've just heard a bit about the evidence of the past few days. I've been a bit blown away. What about you? Well, it's it's deeply concerning, like we all believed that there was no lawful basis for the system, that this was never going to stack up in a court. And the key thing we wanted to find out was what was the department thinking? And it's really shocking to see legal warnings along the timeline. People speaking up saying, my reaction is a no. This doesn't seem right. And this is before it's rolled out. That's before it's rolled out. And then there's a later advice from an external law firm in 2018, which is about three years in, which is devastating. And that's a draft piece of advice. And we don't know what the department did with that. Well, that's the thing that I found really interesting that I'm struggling to get over this legal advice thing. Basically, the department, when it got legal advice that it didn't like about something, it would just not elevate it. It would be a draft and that was it. And the commissioner, the royal commissioner, was pretty appalled by that. That was her word, actually, that she was appalled. But if you've gotten advice, even if it's in draft form, it's legal advice. It's come from lawyers. It exists. It's like a child putting its hands over its eyes and thinking you can't see it to say we don't need to do anything with this, is it? Were you blown away by that? That's an astonishing comment, but it's an astonishing practice because you went, you paid for the legal advice. We paid for it as the Australian taxpayers. We paid for this external legal advice. These people are highly qualified. They appear to have given very clear views. And because the draft is not finalised, perhaps, it isn't actioned. But this, these are the questions, right? I think one of the things about talking about this is, this is very much a forensic process. We're not, this isn't politicians investigating other politicians. This is a really rigorous evaluation that's evolving right now. And they're exploring questions still. So the biggest question at the moment is, why weren't these warnings listened to? Where did they go? The key thing is not to lose sight of, of the people and what happened to the people, mm. because this isn't inside baseball. This, you know, this isn't of interest if you, you know, like legal studies uh, in high school. This is about government in this country, and we all have to trust in government in our lives and young people above all, because you need the Centrelink support to be able to complete assessments for people like me. Um, you need, you, you know, you need your rent assistance in the current environment. And what these are institutions that shape our lives. They take life changing decisions. For me, the key thing I want your listeners to sort of do is to care about this, to see the relevance for them that when they sit down with these four online forums, we all deserve a well-reasoned government decision. We all need to know that what we're getting has some justification behind it.
We've got so many messages coming through. Laura in Ngunnawal Country says, was part of robo-debt. It sucked. I'm happy that the officials are being questioned now. Another person says the drafts are probably under the rug with all the other countless reports and recommendations they sweep under there. Mortimer says, we were paying back thousands when our debt was suddenly forgiven. So angry at this disgusting behaviour. And another person says, I had not paid my robo-debt and was so unable to be part of the class action. Now that it's over, they've restarted sending me requests for payment of my debt after being quiet throughout all of this in the news. You're listening to Hack. I'm Dave Marchese. I'm speaking with legal expert Darren O'Donovan about the Robo-Debt Royal Commission, which is now underway. We are covering it here on Triple J. Darren, who's been giving evidence today, this afternoon? Who have we been hearing from? So we're still, the process is basically you start around the middle of the organizational chart mm. and, and then you go up to the senior leadership. So it's really important to understand that we're hearing basically from middle level executives. So people who were involved when it first was pitched. So we heard today that the first reaction of the Department of Social Services when they were pitched it by the Department of Human Services, so it's like two departments talking to each other, the Department of Social Services representative, his first reaction was, that can't be, I don't think that's legal, and I think that's really unethical. His reaction was it was speculative invoicing. It was basically, you know, we think you might owe this, tell us you don't, which is kind of an accurate statement of what went down. Of course. I mean, it sounds like there's also a bit of criticism of Scott Morrison and that he has some questions to answer. He was the social services minister at the time. Are we expecting him to give evidence to this inquiry? Yes. I think my my big thing is that this it's about supporting the work of the commission right now. So being interested, understanding really that we are just trying to find out what caused this? I don't want people looking at RoboDebt and seeing, thinking of politicians. Mm. Um, I want them thinking of the people I met, the, the young woman who, who hid the debt letter because she was afraid of her partner's reaction. That's why we're, we're doing this. And I don't really want to feed this sort of, it's all going to culminate with a politician. However, what I will say is, at law, the person responsible for the actions of a department is the relevant minister, you know, so there is response, like there is, there is something that will have to be spoken to, but we simply don't know the details of what was shared with Mr. Morrison. We only know that he did want RoboDebt in the 2015 budget. That's super clear from the hearings. Darren, there's still a long way for this Royal Commission to go. What other interesting evidence do you think we'll be hearing? Like, is there something in particular that we should be keeping an eye on or that you're looking forward to hearing about? Well, it's it's all, it really is all about why didn't they listen to the legal warnings? This is a chance if you have had an experience that we need to push so that this never happens again. And that means really reforming Centrelink. That means like these documents, when you're watching the commission, the first reaction you should have is, I had no right to know this because that's the position at law without the Royal Commission. We, we as a public had no right to know these interactions that we're hearing about. And that's one thing that we need to change. For six years, I tr- like I and others tried to get this department 
to explain themselves legally. We were never satisfied. We, tr- we danced in front of them in public, tried, to, tried everything to get them to stop. And when we sort of lift the veil, there isn't much there. There's really worrying stuff behind, behind the curtain when we've looked. So that's got to be, it's a time to act for the people who suffered. And if you're one of them, you should be the one shaping the future. Well, it's something we definitely are staying on top of. We said that we would cover this Royal Commission. We're committed to do that. Dr. Darren O'Donovan, appreciate your take on this. It is complicated stuff for a lot of us, but it's important that we get to the bottom of what happened, like you say. Thank you very much for joining us on Hack. Thanks so much. Hack on Triple J. And a lot of messages still coming through. Chris in Melbourne says, I've worked with government bureaucracy at all levels for a lot of years. The bottom line is that they take the easiest route or do nothing. That's Chris's opinion there. Sean from Bendigo says, those responsible for robo-debt should be charged with manslaughter. And another person, sorry, basically I'm surprised that people think the government will be held to justice worthy of the hardship dealt to those in need. I was on the minimum wage. My partner was studying in medical to benefit the community. And no words, justice will never be served. Yeah, like I said, if you want to follow the updates of this Royal Commission, we'll be keeping an eye on it here at Hack. But also, Darren is tweeting and live tweeting what's happening and he's able to provide a lot of really good analysis. So you should go follow him on Twitter if you're on Twitter. He's at Darren O'Donovan. Hack, watch my freckle tattoos heal in one week. This is day three of my freckles healing. On Triple J. Facial tattoos have always been a source of controversy in Western society. We hear stories of people with culturally important tattoos being banned from venues or feeling discriminated against in the workplace. But is all that going to change in the years ahead? Because tattooists say there are some new trends around how people are getting their faces tattooed. And maybe that could lead to a change in the way society views facial tats. Angel Parsons explains. You always get trends. Like, back when I started, it was the old tribal and tramp stamps. And, like, women didn't have sleeves and stuff like that unless they were, like, you know, pretty hard or something, you know? Like, it was pretty unusual. You know, it's just fashionable now. It's not even, like, you're hardcore if you come in tats. It's just fashion. This is Katie Fox. She's been tattooing since she was a teen and currently runs her own studio in Mackay in North Queensland. From realism portraiture to sternum tats to, of course, the current fine line craze, she's seen it all. Do you do oh. your own tats? Like, yeah, yeah, yep, forehead, my hands, my arms, wow. my leg, oh. everywhere I can reach, I'll tattoo. Katie has tattoos on her face, but so do more and more people, whether that's artwork or just a cosmetic tattoo like on the eyebrows or lips. I've got a gentleman who's trained in SMP, so that's scalp micropigmentation. So that's the hairline tattooing on the actual head. But some other things are also becoming more popular. This is Jelly, and these are the rainbow face tattoos we made for her today. Watch my freckle tattoos heal in one week. This is day three of my freckles healing. When I was growing up, I felt like freckles were something to be insecure about. But now they're also a part of cosmetic tattooing. It is actually what I spend the vast majority of my time doing, the freckles particularly. I would say that I get between 5 and 15 freckle clients a week, so I do a lot of them. This is Daisy Lovesick, 
and freckles are so sought after that she pretty much revolves her business and popular TikTok account around them. This is my beautiful client Rhiannon and today we are tattooing her and her best friend's Zodiac constellations on her face as freckles. This is her skin... Daisy reckons beauty ideals around freckles are changing. Her clients often bring in selfies that have a filter over the top, giving them freckles, like the faux freckle and pumpkin spice makeup filters on TikTok or Snapchat's butterfly filter. A lot of people had freckles when they were a kid. And then as we grow up, your body, I guess, stops naturally producing them. Something about the skin changes and people miss that aspect of themselves. So there's a lot of those reasons, which I think are really beautiful and cool because those are the self-affirming reasons. Mostly she does natural looking freckles, but some other face tattoos often involve little hearts, moons, stars and different colours. It got me thinking, if we see more and more face tattoos that are dainty but go a little further than traditional cosmetic tattoos, will we see a change in how tats are viewed? I've never had anyone report having any concerns or problems. I do also do them in rainbow colours though and that's when I'll really sit down and have the conversation with someone are you ready for what this means? Do you understand how this might affect your housing stability, your career stability, understanding the, ram the potential ramifications of it? We might have to rethink these things, but it's going to be hard because it's very subjective what is an appropriate tattoo and what is not an appropriate tattoo. And I think it's going to be difficult for venues to make any distinction between these things. This is Dr. Maya Underwood. She's an anthropologist of the body from the University of Queensland School of Social Science. She reckons there's been a shift in tattooing, particularly with women. Some academics talk about apologising behaviour when women step on men's toes and they go into masculine territory, like athletes, women athletes often sort of have to apologise and really feminise themselves to say, look, I'm still a woman. It's like, women stopped apologising for using this masculine practice anymore and they went really bold and, and went for these places that have a much bigger impact. You know, hands and faces in particular are places where you can't hide. She says as we see more and more tattoos on faces and necks, the lines will likely start to blur on what society deems appropriate are the newer generations who have grown up with a different type of tattooing going to be more accepting? Or is this always going to have some class and gendered connotations? It's really hard to say. Hack on Triple J. Yeah, really interesting stuff there. A lot of messages coming through about facial tattoos, what they mean. It's time to move on, though. Talk about some politics. Hack. He effectively told his supporters that they were right to think and believe that it had been a flawed election. On Triple J. On Sunday, one of the world's biggest countries had a huge presidential election. The whole world was watching as Brazilians had the choice between the far-right government that it had had for years and a leftist government led by a former leader of Brazil. In a sec, we're going to talk to an expert in Brazilian politics. But first, here's Shalala Madura to take us through what happened. Fans of Luis Ignacio Lula da Silva, known simply as Lula, were stoked that their guy won Brazil's presidential election. 
There had been 11 people vying to become president, but no one got a majority vote. So Brazil held a runoff election between the top two, Lula and incumbent Jair Bolsonaro. And Lula wins, won, but by a very small margin, something like 1.5%. The pair couldn't be more different. Lula is a former trade unionist and leader of the Workers' Party, who was leader of Brazil from 2003 to 2010. Bolsonaro is a former military officer who's often dubbed Tropical Trump for both his friendship with the former US Prez and his political tactics. He has previously said that only God could remove him from office and he has alleged fraud in the election. Bolsonaro set the groundwork for contesting the election way before he actually lost it. In July, he told a group of foreign ambassadors that the elections could be easily rigged. There is no evidence to date of any electoral fraud. But it's probably no surprise that Bolsonaro's supporters are claiming the election was stolen. Bolsonaro loyalists took to the streets, blocking highways and airports. Police had to use tear gas to disperse them from nearly 300 separate roadblocks. It didn't help that Bolsonaro himself refused to publicly concede defeat. He addressed the media by thanking people who voted for him, but didn't admit he'd lost and didn't take any questions from journos. Finally, days after the election, Bolsonaro's chief of staff told journalists that the process of transitioning power had begun signalling that he'd finally made peace with losing. Now Lula's got the tough job of uniting a deeply divided country. Hack on Triple J. Shalala Madora there. I want to get into this a bit more. And with us is an expert, Flavia Belieni zimmerman from the University of Western Australia. She's with us now. Hey, Flavia, thanks so much for joining us on Hack. We are seeing these massive protests in Brazil at the moment. Is it likely that we're going to see the protests get even worse? Uh, Well, I think it is a very delicate moment that we are witnessing in Brazilian political history. The likelihood that the protests, they can worsen, it is actually quite high. Um, The... Lula had the highest number of votes as a Brazilian president in Brazilian political history. But we need to consider also that Bolsonaro had the second highest voting rate in Brazilian political history. Yeah. And it is a divided country. Yeah, it does. Lula had, Lula had approximately 50.6 million votes and Bolsonaro had 49.1 or 2 million votes. So clearly it is a divided country. Lula da Silva was actually in jail previously. He was behind bars for more than 500 days for corruption, money laundering. How is it that he's still allowed to be president? What happened there? So what happened is uh, the charges against Lula, they were uh, appealed and at level of appeal, he was cleared of those charges. But the big problem we have is that he was acquitted based on a technicality. And his whole process was highly politicized and there are big questions regarding due process. But for Bolsonaro supporters, 
they like to focus on the fact that he was acquitted based on a technicality. And currently, there, there is absolutely nothing pending about Lula. That's why he could run. Right. Okay. What about the Amazon? That's something that a lot of people are going to be interested in, the future of the Amazon. It's important to people all over the world. Is it a big issue protecting the Amazon in Brazil? Yes, absolutely. And as I was uh, mentioning at the beginning of this interview, Brazil is a divided country. So what happened is half of the Brazilian population understand how it is important to protect the Amazon and how vital it is to have sustainable development in Brazil. But on the other hand, nearly the other half of the Brazilian population, which supports Bolsonaro, they think that environmental protections actually will withhold the country's development, which is not true. So there is a lot of dialogue and awareness in Brazil regarding environmental issues, but due to fake news and um, also the lobby of um, the Brazilian agribusiness, we do have some views in Brazilian politics, which actually uh, are against environmental protections. Right. That's really interesting stuff. And look, there are a lot of people watching this because we know there are a lot of Brazilians in Australia as well, and they're keen to keep track of what's happening in their home country. Flavia Belliani-Zimmerman from the University of Western Australia, thank you so much for joining us on Hack. I really appreciate your insights. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Hack on Triple J. A big thanks again to Flavia Belliani-Zimmerman from the University of Western Australia. And that's all we've got time for on the Hack Podcast for now. I'll catch you next time.